In this episode of Startups to the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about converting free users to paid, vesting, business ethics, and more listener questions. This is Startups to the Rest of Us, episode 431. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So we're this week, Mike. A couple of uh, personal milestones for January. The first one is that I have averaged over seven hours of sleep per night since I got my CPAP machine. So that is good. I'm glad to see that I'm actually getting sleep these days. And then the other one is that for January specifically, I kind of got back on the bandwagon for exercise. So I've logged 12 days of exercise for January. I, it's one of those like really small personal wins. It doesn't really make a, a difference in the grand scheme of things, but it's nice to see that things seem to be getting back on track. That's awesome, man. Yeah, the seven hours, isn't that up from three and a half? Like four hours or so. I mean, that's a huge difference. Yeah. And and has the obviously sleep makes a difference in in so much stuff. And in fact, you and I I, I shared an audiobook that I was uh, listening to. It was called The Power of Sleep. The power of when. The power of when is what it's called, but a lot of it's about sleep. And just that like not getting enough sleep, it just shapes your whole mindset. You can get sad, depressed, you can be pessimistic. I'm all of those things when I don't get enough sleep. But is that why? I mean, the 12 days of exercise for you, is it is it because you're getting more sleep that you're able to do that? Yeah, definitely. Like I do not have the willpower to go to the gym if I don't get enough sleep. So, and I just recognize that, which kind of sucks, but it's, it means that if my sleep goes off the rails, then pretty much everything else goes off the rails too. So the sleep is definitely kind of the, the underlying factor, I would say. And then it, but it, you know, it obviously like the, the other stuff contributes in other ways. So like if I'm getting enough, enough sleep, but probably not enough exercise, then I could probably get by. But if I'm not getting the sleep, then not exercising contributes to other, you know, kind of negative things that happen and just completely throws me off the rails. Yeah, I can totally imagine that. I mean, the same thing happens to me, you know. Glad to hear it, man. And has your mindset shifted as well? Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, definitely more optimistic about just about everything, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how, I don't know, like I'm, in some ways I look back at it and it's like night and day difference between now and like a couple of months ago, but it's just partly the mindset, but partly the ability to actually remember things. Like I've, I remember conversations that I was in before where I would literally just forget words and I still have, I would say some lingering effects of that, but I'm hoping that it gets better and eventually goes away. Like, I don't know how, uh, how bad things can get or how long that like it can affect you for the sleep deprivation. I mean, I have read horror stories and stuff about like people who don't get enough sleep for extended periods of time. And it's just like long-term brain damage and stuff, which is kind of terrifying, but I don't know how bad that was for me. And it's not something I'm going to find out exactly anytime soon. And if I don't remember it, did it ever happen? I don't know. <laughs> That's right. And can we, can't we just blame it on getting old too? Well, you could. I'm young. I could. Oh, wait a minute. So, hey, we had a we had a pretty cool comment on episode 423, which is where we talked through our goals for 2019. 
And you essentially look back on 2018 and you said it was a complete bust. You know, I got ones out of five on, on all my goals and I was pulling some things out of you, like what were some wins, right? But Sarah chimed in in the comments and said, hey, Mike, I think you could think about 2018 a bit differently. You actually had a major win, which was finding out that you have sleep apnea. Without that discovery, 2019 would have been the same or even worse than 2018. But now you know what the problem is. You can do something about it. And as you both discussed, lack of sleep messes up absolutely everything. And I want to throw in here uh, that knowing is half the battle after all. Am I right? Yojo? Yes. Yep. All right. <laughs> so back to Sarah. She, she says, so rather than feeling crappy about not meeting any of your 2018 goals, maybe you could reframe 2018 as a transition year or turning point. Best of luck for 2019. Hope it's everything you want to be. Thanks, Sarah. Appreciate that. I mean, I I have like even recently I've started kind of rethinking my my thoughts on what last year were, and I, you know, I, I write it off as kind of more of a a learning experience of like yes, I this happened and it sucks, but at the same time, there's literally nothing I can ever do to get that time back, so I may as well just kind of buckle down and move on. Yep. Sometimes that's what you got to do. We also had another comment that I thought was was poignant and it was about episode 428 where we answered some listener questions. One of them was about equity split and Rob chimed in. I don't know his last name. It wasn't me, but he he chimed in in the comments and he said, regarding the equity split question, you missed mentioning vesting periods and cliffs, which is super important. And he's correct. And what's interesting is normally I do when we talk about equity splits, but typically even if two co-founders are starting a company together, you want them to vest their equity over a period of time. The range is, tends to be two to four years and you often have a cliff at the front, meaning you, you get zero equity until one year in, then you vest that whole year at a time, and then you vest the rest on a monthly schedule. It's not how you have to do it, but it is the most common way to do it. I think it's how Y Combinator has kind of set it up, and I believe they use either, either a three- or four-year vesting with a one-year cliff up front. So I appreciate Rob for calling that out. That what you're trying to save yourself from is someone working on your business for six months, splitting, you know, leaving, and then he has he or she owns half the company. You're trying to avoid that so that everyone puts in their time and earns their equity in essence. So thanks for chiming in with that, Rob. One other thing I wanted to mention is that I've started adding to the email courses and stuff that I have on the Blue Tick website. And based on those, I actually got an email this morning from somebody inviting me to contribute to their online publication and wanted to talk to me a little bit more about it. So I'm going to try and set up a, a meeting to discuss that with them next week. But there's another one that I have that is uh, in the works as well that's uh, completely unrelated to, to the online course that I have. But both of them have publications that are catering to people who are doing email marketing. So it's kind of exciting exciting to see that those opportunities, I'll say, are starting to show up. That is fun. Will you mention them on the show and or link to them when the time comes? I will as soon as they, or at least when they get closer to going live, or I know that they're actually going to go live. <laughs> I've, I'm sure that you're no stranger to this, but I've been on podcasts before, different places, like written articles and stuff, where you write it and submit it, or you record the episode, and then for whatever reason, it just never sees the light of day. So I'll wait a little while until I actually do that. Yeah, I know. I actually do more vetting now of podcasts or magazines or whatever that want to interview me because I have had enough of those happen where I spend the time to do it, and then it never sees the light of day, and it, it's kind of tough. So... Cool. Sounds good, man. Well, today we are answering some listener questions. Our first is a question about business ethics, which I think is, is kind of interesting. So 
It's uh, from Paul McMahon. He says, hi, guys. I don't think you've ever done a show on business ethics. I'd be interested in hearing about some of the ethical challenges you've faced when running your businesses and how you've approached them. For me personally, my biggest challenge has been deciding how to approach dealing with businesses I consider to be unethical. For example, as a business, Facebook has shown many times that they're willing to make moral compromises in exchange for growth and revenue. This makes me not want to support them. At the same time, say I have a positive ROI on Facebook ads. How do I balance my disdain for their business with growing my own business? Another example is what to do about customers whose businesses or organizations you consider to be unethical. In my case, I run a niche job board tied to my personal identity. It's a manual process to onboard customers, so I talk with every company wanting to use it. I've had some companies want to use it whose business I think is immoral while still legal. I've waffled on whether or not to accept them as customers. I wonder if you've ever faced a similar challenge. As bootstrappers, we normally don't have a board or shareholders to answer to. This makes it hard to hide behind the idea that we should just do whatever's best for the company, as the company is a direct reflection of our own goals and beliefs. Ultimately, the specific ethical challenges we face depend on us personally. So rather than looking for advice with challenges I've faced, I'd be more interested in hearing about yours and how you've dealt with them. I think this is a great question, but it's also extremely involved and nuanced based on who you are and what you value. I, I mean, I, I've seen people commenting on specifically on Facebook, for example, and Paul specifically called Facebook out as one of those companies where he's kind of making this moral compromise to exchange it for growth and revenue because it does bring business by spending money on Facebook ads. But how do you go about doing that and how do you justify that? And I can't say that there's one good answer for it because it really depends on your level of comfortability with that and what it is that you're offering and the types of people that you're serving. Personally, I look at it as like, if you're not getting in front of your customers, then are you doing them a disservice by not trying to help them? And, you know, obviously like you can go back and forth on that all day long. I think for me, it depends a lot on the advertisers platform themselves and whether it's something that I use or would use. And if I, if it's something that I'm not going to use or have absolute qualms about using, then I probably wouldn't do advertising on there. But at the same time, like I have a Facebook account. So would I do at Facebook advertising? Yes. Do I have a kind of a, a moral dilemma, personal moral dilemma over them making money from that? Yes, to some extent, but there's also not a lot of other options. And I think that's kind of the, the a big deal is a, to think about is like, do you have other options? Are there ways that you can not support them in other financial ways, but still get what you need out of them? Because they're a big company, they don't care. I think that's a good point. I want to hop in here because it's like, look at Amazon and Apple and Google and Facebook and I don't know, GE and Procter and Gamble, you know, and all these companies there, I don't love everything they do. Right? I don't think, I mean, they, they all make missteps and they all do something. So you just, something that's either unethical or immoral or whatever, you know, however you want to frame it. So I think your point of it being nuanced and like having to weigh these things, it, it's an interesting, I like how you said, if, I, if I'm not going to do Facebook ads, I re really should delete your Facebook account too. And some people do that. But if you haven't done that, I, I don't know that it that it matters to you enough if you're still engaging with the platform. Well, that's what, that's kind of what I was thinking is like, if you haven't, if you're not so opposed to Facebook that you haven't deleted your Facebook account yet, then you're probably not that violently opposed to them such that supporting them through advertising on their platform really makes that much of a difference. But if you have deleted it, 
then you're probably not going to create a new one just so that you can do that. And I know I know that there are some people who have deleted their Facebook accounts and then created one specifically so that they could do advertising. And that's because Facebook will not allow you to do advertising unless you have a Facebook account linked to it, which kind of sucks. But if you're going to go down that route, then what do you do about it? Your options are to not do the ads or to do them. Yeah, this is, you know, what's interesting is I, I always think back, he, he's asking basically about ethics and these terms ethics and morals they do relate to like right or wrong conduct but if i looked up a definition of them and i I always think of this as like they they can be used interchangeably but ethics refer to rules provided by an external source and morals are individuals own principles right so ethics can be laws or it can be workplace code of conduct or it can be religious principles whereas morals are something that, that comes from inside you and i I do think here that they can overlap, but they're not always the same. Like sometimes your morals can conflict with the ethics, with laws. You know, you, know, you don't agree with a law that's passed and you wholeheartedly don't think that's, that's ethical. So I, I think I'm not trying to muddy the water or, or get philosophical here, but I do think that with bigger businesses, it is easier to make this, this ethical argument that you know, it's a larger body and, and there's legal requirement, right, that, that you do what's best for the shareholders. Whereas with smaller companies, it's not. And have I faced moral dilemmas over the years? Yeah, I have. I mean, I turned down, there was a time when I was unemployed. It was right after the dot-com bust. And someone was going to give me a contract for, it was like 15000 bucks, And so it would have kept us this is when we were young and living pretty svelte and it was going to keep us going for a couple months, you know, probably three months or so. And I went through, talked to the guy through my hourly rate, did all this stuff. And he's like, this sounds great. Let's get started right away. I was going to work from home. It was all this thing. And then when he started walking me through the side, I was like, yeah, I don't, this isn't something I can support. Like, I was like, I'm sorry, man, but I, this isn't something I could show to my kids. And so while I don't, I don't have an issue with it and it's not illegal. It's just not something that, that I can do. And it was a very, it was a very hard decision for me, but I've never looked back and thought, boy, I really should have, you know, sacrificed. There was just something in me that didn't agree with it. And I, I don't know, uh, I, I'm not sure I can count any of the times that where I've followed my moral compass that I regret regret doing that. So if I were onboarding customers and there were, I had an issue with what they're up to, I, I mean, yeah, I guess you can piss people off by saying, hey, you know what, I'm sorry, we just can't accept you. And they could get angry. Could they sue you, I suppose? But like, is it really worth their time? And if you have something in your terms of service to cover you there, you know, that you can cover that legal thing. But in my opinion, if, if you run your own business, and you're bootstrapped, you're doing it for a lot of reasons. And one of those is so really you control your own destiny, right? And I feel like I want to be able to get up every day, look myself in the mirror and and believe in what I'm doing. And, you know, each of us might have a slightly different definition of that because our morals are different from person to person. But one part of that for me is I want to be able to tell my kids about any investment I make in any company and I want them and any company that I, that I fund, that I advise, that I work on, I never want to have to say, oh yeah, you know, don't tell the kids about that company. And so there are certain, certain businesses that are legal that I am going to personally not invest in or, or be associated with because of that. And that happens to be my moral compass, but it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, yours as a listener. Yeah, I think there's a good distinction there between ethical, moral, and illegal. <laughs> like, you'd, uh, like I definitely don't want to be on the side of doing things that are illegal. But at the same time, I think if you 
take a step back from that and look at like the United States, for example, there's marijuana legalization all over the place, but it's still not legal at a federal level. So like it's becomes a very much a gray area at that point. It's like, is it legal? Is it not? It depends on which laws you're looking at. And there's some people who are like, I don't care. I don't, I don't agree with the law. I'm not going to uh, follow it. And that's totally your choice. And maybe you're doing something illegal at that point, but is it moral or ethical? And I think that you're points about the difference between those are, are head on. I mean, and I, I agree with you in terms of what I would be willing to do and what like I would want to be able to show to my kids. Like I wouldn't want to be involved in stuff that I would have to hide from them. I'm not into hiding things. So this is an interesting one. And I think that Paul asked specifically about the ethics, but I think what he's talking about is morals. You know what I'm saying? He talked about business ethics, but he said, I've had some companies want to use it whose business I think is immoral. And that is, you know, it's it's subtle, it's a nuance, but it actually is a different thing because ethics would be, you know, again, an external, kind of an external force on you. And honestly, like this is something that I've struggled with to some extent because with BlueTick specifically, people can use BlueTick for cold email outreach. And I'm not a huge fan of it. Like I don't do a lot of cold email outreach, mainly like I I will pinpoint like email certain people, but I don't I'm not gonna like throw them into an automated sequence if I don't think that they it's a good chance that they're gonna be interested in. And quite frankly, like I will find ways to make it a warm introduction instead of a, a cold email. Like I'm not I'm just not gonna drop somebody a completely cold email because one, I don't think that it works very well. And two, I think there's better ways to provide value and get in front of people than just dropping a completely cold email out of the blue. But there are people who do feel that that's a viable strategy and they want to do that. And I, I do struggle to some extent with like, what what do I do with those people and how should they be treated? And, and I don't treat them any different than any other customer. But at the same time, I do struggle to some extent with like, what what should I do with the business itself? How do I turn these people away or say, hey, look, maybe there's another piece of software that you should be going to use because some of them will come to me and say, hey, I have my own mail server and, and I, I'm able to send, I forget what it was, some customer came to me or prospective customer and they said they've got their own mail server and they bumped it up to like 32 processors and ha- could send like thousands of emails per second. And I'm like, this is not something that I really want to be involved in because like I, I kind of know in the back of my mind without being told what the, is probably going to happen there. Right. And some of this is, some of that is kind of a morality thing or, you know, kind of moral compass. And other other part of it is risk mitigation of like, this is going to end poorly and I don't want to be associated with that, you know? And I think those two can overlap at times. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there is that aspect of it for this. It was just like how comfortable, I mean, we talk about this at microcom to some extent too. Like there's certain marketing strategies that people will use and it's not illegal. It's not something that you can't do. It's just, you're not necessarily entirely comfortable with it. So you won't do that. And it's, it's a hard decision to make in every single situation is a little bit different. And I don't, it's just hard. <laughs> I don't have great advice for that. So I hope our thoughts were helpful, Paul. Thanks for writing in. Our next question is perhaps an easier one. It's about converting free users to paid. And someone has a freemium product. His name is Mark. And he actually asked this question openly on Twitter about a week ago. And I think someone someone then, uh, it was Adrian Pewter, he kind of pinged you and I and Ruben uh, on Twitter 
And I said, I have some quick thoughts, but frankly, this deserves more than 280 characters of thought. So I asked Mark, the original poster, to write in with more details. He didn't. I'm assuming he either got busy, just wasn't that interested in hearing our thoughts or whatever. But I still think it's an interesting question to talk about because I think this is something that folks struggle with. So he said, I've just found out that my freemium product has on average 9,000 users a day access it with only 140 people paying for the advanced features. I'm looking for someone who can mentor me on how to migrate those free users to happy paying users without pissing them off. And so while we're not going to mentor him, I have some thoughts on how to think about doing this. But why don't you kick us off with some ideas? Well, I, I think to start with is that 140 people out of 9,000 is about, it's a little over one and a half percent. It's like 1.55%. So if my memory serves me, that's actually not a terrible freemium rate. Yep. I believe, I believe Dropbox in the early, in the early days, the numbers they published was like 3% from free to paid over 12 months. And when they did that, they had such a high funnel volume that that was their business model. And who knows what it is now, but so I agree 1.4, 1.5% is not, I mean, this it's in the order of magnitude of what Dropbox had. Right. So for, to start off with, like, that's not terrible in terms of how to migrate those free users to happy paying users. Did he say what this product was? Cause I don't see that here. No, he didn't. And that's again, why I asked him to, you know, I don't know if it's B2C. Uh, I don't, I don't know. My guess is, it, is that it would be to B2C. It doesn't seem like it would be anything else. Yeah, I would think so. I'm not sure why you would do freemium with deep B2B. Right. I shouldn't I shouldn't say that because there's MailChimp and Drip and they have free plans. There's whole reasons for that. But flippantly on the surface, if you have 9,000 free users and 140 paid, I'm guessing it's a B2C product. Right. So there's, I think there's a few different ways you could go about this. So it looks to me like he started going down the path of analyzing who is using the product. And that's a great place to start. Like if you know that 9,000 users a day are accessing it. Something that that brings to mind though is that the users per day is not necessarily reflective of like the total number. So that one and a half percent that you and I just talked about, it's probably, I don't know, substantially lower than that because he's saying users per day are actively logging in versus how many is it over a month or three months or over the course of a year? Like how many total accounts are there versus the number of people who are using it? And I'm not saying that you, you know, you're going to be able to charge all those people. It's just kind of a, a benchmark for like how many people have started using it and decided to keep using it versus how many people decided that it was worth it enough to pay. That aside, like take a look at seeing what features people are using and compare them between the paid users and the free users and see if there are places where they are using certain features or using a certain amount of it. So if it's, I don't know, like, let's say like Buffer as an example, if you have a certain number of social profiles connected, I think it's three or four, like you, you're still qualified for the premium plan. But then once you get above that, then you have to pay for it and see what those metrics look like and see if there are places where you can see that there are people who would probably pay for it if there was a, a barrier there or if there was a paywall to go over that limit. In order to convert them over from free to paid, you're going to have to be really, really careful because if you simply take away, take something away, if, let's say that the limit was, you decide that it should be five and a lot of people have 10, those people who are not paying for it now are going to be really, really upset that you made them start paying for it, even though you're providing value. 
you can kind of segment your list a little bit, see who signed up with a work account versus a, a free account. There's places on GitHub where you can go and you can find like lists of mail servers for like they include things like Gmail and Yahoo and AOL and all those things, but basically free email accounts, those providers, match that up against your list, see who's probably using a work account versus a paid account or a free account, and target those people who are using a work account first as the people to try and get them to upgrade. Offer them some sort of special discounts or incentives, maybe something above and beyond what the, the typical package would be. You can also do kind of a Netflix model where you grandfather them in for a certain time period, let's say six months or a year and say, look, look, we're going to start charging for this, but we're not going to do it right now. We'll do it in that time frame. And that way you can kind of gauge the response as opposed to just doing it and then dealing with the fallout. Those are just a bunch of things off the top of my head. Rob, I'm sure you've got plenty to add. Yep. Yep. No, I, I totally, I totally do. And I mean, that's, that's the thing. I think there are different options here that you have to think about. If it's B2C, the odds, you know, the, the numbers are actually not that bad. So the first thing I'd try to figure out is why are people not upgrading? And so I'd probably email all, everybody who is not and I'd say, what are you looking for? Just start conversations. What in our paid plan isn't that enticing? What do you need? And there's going to, maybe there's maybe 8,000 of them just are, are teenagers or are people who live in a country where they just don't have the money to pay for it. And then there's, none of this is worth it. You know, it's trying to get to not that they aren't upgrading, but why they aren't upgrading. So that'd be the first thing I'd think about. And then if you decide, oh, there's a bunch of, you know, businesses using this and they should be, be paying for it, more than one and a half percent or whatever, then I, I think you kind of have four options. Like you can email everybody with like a one-time upgrade reward, like, hey, get a free $20 Amazon gift card. That's a terrible idea. But, you know, uh, this free ebook or this free audio series or this free physical book or just some type of reward to upgrade right now to paid. Probably not going to do great, but it's one option. It's simple. It's quick. Another option is to offer maybe a one-time special pricing tier and be like, this is only available once and it's the same price as what everyone else is getting, but you get twice as much or three times as much if you upgrade now. So that keeps your price the same. The next level up is to kind of, you know, of, of giving a lot of stuff is to offer a one-time lifetime discount and be like, look, your price will be half of what everyone else is, you know, or, you know, the normal signups for the rest of the time that you're on the product and 70%, whatever you want to do, but you have to pay for a year in advance and just see what kind of result you can get there. And then the last option is, Frankly, if if the free plan is working for you and it is marketing, which is really what free plans are supposed to be, then you don't want to close it down. But if the free plan is a lot of cost for you, uh, whether it's in support or it's in hosting, and you want to consider closing it down, then that's kind of your last option. Yes, you will make a few people mad. My guess is, well, I, I don't want to make a guess, but it, there's always fewer people mad, you know, than than you think will be. But you could close a free tier with, you know, three to twelve months of notice, and basically offer one of the above options that I've already given, and just say, look, due to this and that, like I'm a single founder, small bootstrap company, we don't have the resources. I'm sorry, it was an experiment, and sometimes these things happen. Like people understand that, right? You'll get two responses from eight thousand that'll be all huffy about it, you know, or maybe it's ten, but still, it'll be a tiny, tiny fraction. I have done this before, right? I acquired Hittail and there was this huge free tier and people were abusing the system, frankly. And um, I had to shut one down and I did it just like that. And I did. I got some emails from people who were mad and then I got a bunch of people that upgraded. It was enough to, you know, kind of cover hosting costs for for each month based on the number of people that upgraded. So th those are the options I, I think that 
you know, really come to mind. And obviously, you know, some of those overlap heavily with what you said, but I just, I think there are definitely ways to be thinking about this. Free plans are tricky. I think that's the bottom line, right? Is like, they're not as clear cut, not as easy to navigate as just straight ahead trial to paid, but that doesn't mean you, sh- you shouldn't do them. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, an approach to basically chipping away at that number and increasing it from 140 to as high as you can get it, obviously. But there's ways to do it, and it depends a lot on how much time you have or how much time you want it to take. Like, you know, you can just send out an email and say, hey, you know, in two weeks we're going to start charging for this and kind of shut down the free plan. But that's a, a hard line in the sand, and it's difficult to back away from versus the opposite approach, which is approaching it with a soft hand and trying to slowly move people over and not make them too upset. And you just take a much longer period of time to do it. And then over time, you kind of ratchet that up and slowly, I don't know, uh, be a little bit more tight-fisted about it. But I would be a little cautious with that number of people. Yep, I agree. So I got a couple other questions. We only have a couple more minutes, but I went to Quora. And I went to the startups category and I pulled a few more questions off. We'll see how many we have to get through. Mike, I'm curious, what is the worst startup business idea that you have ever heard? I have the perfect one that I've heard. So I was talking to somebody, it was maybe two years ago, two or three years ago. And uh, he had told me how he had this great idea for a startup and they'd already gotten something like $300,000 worth of funding for it and had basically burned through it all. And somehow this company was worth $8 million. And the basic idea of it, and this, this, this is kind of his words, like I'm paraphrasing to some extent, but he kind of said that it's a combination of Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, and like he named off like two or three other major online businesses like that people on this who listen to the show would recognize. And I'm just like, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> Cause and they kind of wanted to mash them all together and create like one giant platform for everybody to use. And even after burning through like $300,000 worth of investment capital, I was like, well, how many paid you, like how many paid customers do you have? Like, uh, you know, and of course, you know, getting that out of him was like pulling teeth and he's like none. And then I said, okay, so you haven't made any money. How many users do you have? Like free people, like people just using it. And the answer was still none. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I can't even believe I'm entertaining this conversation. Yeah. And that's the tough thing, man, is it's like, I run into some entrepreneurs who want to start startups and they don't have any connection to the startup space. And that's okay. You don't have to like be part of the community and, and drink the Kool-Aid of any one person. You don't have to be part of the MicroConf crowd or be part of the Silicon Valley crowd or the Saster or whatever. But I do think that there are learnings and general knowledge that we all roll our eyes at that are so fundamentally known within the circles that if you want to start a startup, like having some of that knowledge is just as helpful as some guardrails, you know? And and when you when you say that Facebook, Pinterest, Google, Apple, Facebook combination or whatever, whatever the guy said, it's like, oh, this is, this is one that it just breaks so many rules that you know that it's, it's probably a bad idea. But he didn't know. He doesn't know that it breaks the rules, right? Because he doesn't know what kind of the rules and quotes are in terms of trying to get something off the ground. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think even objectively, though, I mean, you're trying to build something that is that broad and uh, I don't know. It just struck me as odd. <laughs> yeah. Delusional is really the word. <laughs> yeah. I think that, I don't know the worst. It's it's hard to nail the worst down, right? I've probably some of the worst ever have been ideas that I've come up with myself, but there was one. So I was a, a contractor developer years ago 
And it was during the dot-com boom. And of course, that's when a lot of the worst ideas, I think, came out. And one of them was, I won't say the name of it, but they had this system where like, (laughs) it's hard for me to say this with a straight face, but basically you could come to the website because remember there were no mobile phones, right? It wasn't a mobile app, but you could log into the website on your computer. And if you had seen someone on the road that you wanted to get in contact with, I am assuming it was kind of a, it was like a dating kind of social network thing before social networks. But if you got their license plate number, you typed it into the the startup's website, they would like notify that person and say, so-and-so wants to connect with you. Do you want to connect with them? And it had to be a double opt-in. And then there was going to be a social network and people could like chat back and forth and meet and talk. And that was the idea. And I remember we were building this and I'm like, wait, aren't there privacy concerns? Wait, how are you going to get people's emails from their license plates? How many people, what's the network effect on this? Who's going to think, you know, there's so, it's just layers and layers and layers of questions of like, how will this ever work? Now, you know, and again, at least if you had a mobile phone or something and you could take a picture of their car and yours and then they could see you. But if, if you suddenly got an email from this company that's like, someone wants to connect with you, they did it based on your license plate. And you're like, who? I don't know who that person is. Like, I didn't see them while I was driving on the freeway. Is it, you think it's bizarre or you think it's good? You think it's gold? Uh, no, I definitely don't think it's gold. But I, <laughs> but I also will say flat out that it is hard to predict what the general population will do or will gravitate towards for certain types of social apps. Like if you would ask me, I forget what it was, Snapchat, for example, like if you were asking me five years ago, like, oh, will Snapchat ever be a thing? I'd be like, no, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It was my idea. And I asked you and you told me not to do it. And look where that got us, Mike. I know. But like, it's hard to predict when those things come up, like whether or not that's going to go anywhere. I mean, I think that it's personally, would I ever use it? Heck no. Like, there's no way. Like, that's just like got soccer written all over it. So I think that you'd have a hard time getting traction with it. But would nobody use it? I can see people deciding they wanted to use it if they were in a hit and run and somebody took off. And they're like, I think I have this license plate. Although they just say, give it to the cops. So what difference does it make? Yeah, that's the thing. Then they'd contact him and be like, do you want to hear <laughs> from this person about your hit and run? And you're like, no, rejected. Uh, that's funny. All right. So last question of the day, Mike, what are the things that no one tells you about starting a startup? I think the thing that comes to mind here is that there are going to be days, possibly weeks and months where you get up in the morning and you say to yourself, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> and and it's like, it's all going to be related to stuff that like you, you thought you got into the business for one reason and you find out that you're like going over your books line by line because somebody made a mistake or there's some API that's coming in and, and hitting your app and you have to somehow lock it down because it's like basically DDoSing your systems. Like there's going to be things that come up where you're like, I didn't sign up for this. And the reality is you kind of did, but it's too late to do anything about it. And everyone has those days. Those are the two things I would say about that. Yeah, those are those are good answers, Mike. When I think about it, I almost think, because there's things, a lot of people will tell you that it's hard and a lot of people will tell you it takes a long time and such. And I've, I've said that a lot. I think one thing that maybe we say on this podcast, but I'm not sure... I'm not sure that I hear it outside of our small community. I mean, and, and honestly, like, you know, the MicroConf, the bootstrapper community is, 
it's both big and small, right? In terms of the entire worldwide startup community, it's actually is pretty small, even though it can have some, some influence on those folks. So just outside of our community, I don't hear many people saying, when you're starting up, try to get to revenue quickly and try to do that in you know, the first, whatever, the first six months after launch. I think that there is so much importance put on growth of like user engagement or growth of, of numbers and just daily actives and this kind of stuff that I even think some, there's like SaaS founders launching with pure freemium models because they just think that the number of people coming to use their app is important or is what counts or something like that. And so I think that focusing on revenue early is something that I don't think is talked about enough. Yeah, I would say I agree with that. I think that's something of a common fallacy. And I almost want to blame Steve Jobs for this, but people think that, and I'm not immune to this, but like you think that if you build something great, people are going to find it or you know what the customer wants. That's really more it with, with Steve Jobs than anything else is like, you know what the customer wants and you just need to build it and then put it in front of them. And then you find out afterwards that, oh yeah, you, you were way off base and there's all these other things that you need to do or that they want or that they need or subtle things that you need to now change. Whereas if you would just talk to the customer in the beginning, you would learn that those things weren't true. And I think there's this the aura or halo around Steve Jobs just sitting down and saying, I know what these people want and this is how it should work. And all the stories that go around where he just was very intuitive about it, what should be built. And people kind of think that they, they can do that too. And I, I think there's a big distinction between a multi-billionaire who, <laughs> who has been in that position and the, all of the rest of us. Right. And, and he eventually did that, I think. I mean, I think there's myth around it. It's, you know, some of it's exaggerated, but he didn't do that early in his career. I mean, they completely, you know, wh when was the last time you heard someone talk about the Apple IIe was designed by Wozniak and it was so far ahead of its time that it, it, when it did catch on, it was amazing. But it's not like Jobs, aside from, you know, crafting the outside of it or whatever, he didn't invent the Apple IIe, but he came up with uh, the Lisa which was a failure. He pioneered, you know, really pushed the Macintosh forward, which was a failure early on. It eventually cut on. And then he launched Next and built a computer that was a failure. You know what I'm saying? Like he had a bunch of failures. And so he thought he knew what people wanted and actually didn't. And it wasn't until years later, he eventually, if you read the book Becoming Steve Jobs, it talks a lot about his transformation and, and it touches on all those things. And that's what people forget is like you and me and, and the person who thinks they're Steve Jobs, we don't have the decades and the hundreds of millions of dollars to burn through to learn the lessons that he ultimately did. Because by the time he did come out and do the, the iMac, the iPod, the iPhone, you know, all the stuff that he eventually had wild, amazing success with, a lot of people forget that he lost hundreds of millions of dollars of his and other people's money on the journey there. And he spent decades of his life basically learning that stuff. And most of us don't have the luxury of it. And that's kind of my point is like, we forget that <laughs> piece of it. Yep. Well, interesting questions for sure. But if you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupstherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupstherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.